would you call it a bad plan? Yeah, oh I gosh. probably would. Let's not. Let's not. <laughs> I like it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Mona and Alan. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, we all watched the documentary on Netflix 13th, and we are going to be talking about the prison industrial system in our country and uh, seeing where that conversation takes us. This documentary, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. If you haven't seen it yet, we encourage you to do it, but it's definitely informed our desire to have this conversation this week. And for our segment, we are going to be looking at strange laws around our country. Um, So without any further ado, let's kind of get into this conversation. Um, In addition to be inspired by the documentary that we saw Mona also has had a connection with a prison pen pal that has been pretty influential for her. So Mona, why don't you go ahead and share a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. And I just want to say before we get going, if you want to pause this episode and go watch the documentary and come back to it, there's it's it's very meaty documentary. So it's a we're we're talking about this to decompress ourselves because it, there's so much to process. Um, so it's a really good one. Yeah, it's and so good. In addition to that, we've also had a similar conversation to this. We've 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 addressed this issue way back in episode number seventeen. You can find that at rentcast.com/slash seventeen to kind of get a full context of where we're coming from as we enter into this conversation. It'll give you a window into what we've thought and how those things are always evolving. So put that out there too. Yeah. So a few months ago, I went to a an event that my seminary's LGBTQ club was putting on. And the event was for an organization called Black and Pink. And it's was this organization was started by a formerly incarcerated person who was LGBTQ and noticed while they were incarcerated that um, gay populations, gay and queer populations, and trans populations in prison really get a lot of abuse. A lot they, their experience, on average, from other prisoners is incredible. Is more difficult because uh, of really strict social um, gender mores and codes. So this guy started um, this organization called Black and Pink that would exist to just write letters, be, be a pen pal service for inmates to fr- what they call free world allies. So the club at my school was doing mail processing. So we were opening letters from inmates from four and five months back. That's how many requests they were getting uh, of just people writing letters to to get friends, to have pen pals. And when I first started doing this, I was kind of skeptical, like, you know, are, are these going to be requests for money? Uh, what is this about? You know, how, how sincere are these folks? I mean, I had a lot of really preconceived notions, I'll, I'll admit, about what this would be. And as I started reading through these letters, I just, I couldn't help but cry within the the first hour I was doing this work, um, it's just letter after letter of handwritten requests for friends saying, I really just want someone to talk to. I don't have a lot of friends here. I keep getting moved around or I don't get along with my cellmate and it's hard to make connections. I just want someone. I really like talking about camping. Can someone just talk to me about camping? Or occasionally we'd get letters like, 
please help. We don't have anyone to turn to. Uh, my cellmate is in really dire medical straits and no one will help us. And she's been really sick for three days. People would send pictures of themselves or their kids. They would talk about their lives and their passions. A, a lot of very upbeat, like happy, smiley faces, like, please just talk to me. You know, see me as a person kind of a thing. I was just blown away at how how prejudiced I was walking into that scenario and how moved I was by people just expressing the need for like normal human intimacy. Also at how many people struggled with English and writing because, you know, our educational system has failed a lot of people who are incarcerated and they tend to be folks who uh, haven't had as much education, tend to be lower class, which means they're more prone to be in the way of crime, not even necessarily commit crimes, but just be around crime and therefore more easily locked up or they're people of color who are, are from getaway school systems. I mean, there's just a really complex, really complex uh, set of issues here, right? And so I started getting really interested in this and I started writing papers about about mass incarceration and and realizing that the the th the thing that I had in my head about what this was, what what prison was and what criminal justice was in our country was so far from reality. So anyway, one of the letters I opened was from a guy named Jason. And Jason had made a little ad, like a little ad with a, and a little piece of paper that had a picture of him and said, hey there, I really want a, a pen pal. I would like someone to be friends with and to entertain and educate. I spent my whole youth hopping trains across the country. I've had a really interesting life and I feel like I've gained some perspective, you know, being incarcerated for like 30 years in for life without parole. And I just would like a pen pal. And something about the way that he wrote his attitude and the way he said things, I just I just found this person really interesting. And I thought, hey, I'm going to write him a letter. And so I did. And he wrote back. He wrote me a 10-page letter back saying he was afraid to write too much, but I'm the first new pen pal he's had in like three or four years. And he was just so excited to have someone to talk to. And he explained that in prison, it's very common that friendships are, are really tenuous because a lot of times people will make friendships for the purposes of uh, getting, you know, something out of the friendship. Or if that person gets in a fight, they expect their friends to come fight for them. So it can be very dangerous, actually, to have friends. And a lot of prisons will ban mail and messages in between inmates. So if you don't happen to see your friends that you make, if you get ch if you change facilities or change schedules, you can't keep in touch with people. It's not allowed. Moreover, especially people who are incarcerated for long periods of time, a lot of times the, the only way their families can cope with the fact that they're incarcerated is to basically consider them dead or lost. So most people in incarcerated for more than a decade, um, the vast majority of them, their families will have abandoned them. Fortunately, in the case of my pen pal, he has friends and family who he's kept in touch with, who have kept in touch with him, but he doesn't, he doesn't have specific hope of ever getting parole or getting out. And he's given me permission to tell his story, if you guys wouldn't mind. This is published on his blog that has a few posts on it. What happens to a little boy who runs away from home at the age of 12? What do six years of struggling for his life against a cold and often hostile world cost him? Well, in my case, it cost me everything. I'd like to share my story with you and ask you not to judge me forever by the worst thing I've ever done. And at the end of it all, maybe you can come to understand what awaits those lost souls who don't grow up with the normal advantages most Americans take for granted. Not that I blame that for how I've fallen. Not anymore. I've learned to accept responsibility for my own actions these days. 
I've been in prison for the last 25 years for a crime I committed when I was 18. An older man approached me after a night of underage drinking and asked me to go along on a robbery he had planned. I would give anything to be able to go back in time that night and take back what happened, but no matter how remorseful I am, I can't change history. No one can. The robbery turned bad and became a murder. I went on the run, but eventually turned myself in to pay for the wrong I had done. Little did I know, but California had around that time begun a tough-on-crime spree, mandating a mandatory minimum sentence of death by incarceration, also known as life without the possibility of parole, for any murder committed during a robbery. I was shocked to find that I'd faced that kind of sentence because I'd always considered myself to be a basically good person. To know that society felt I was irredeemable garbage at such a tender age came as a bit of a shock. Having lived on the streets since the age of 12, I had very little chance to live any kind of real life. Now there was absolutely no chance for any kind of life, or at least that's what I thought at the time. It would be almost two decades before I could really come to grips with the fact that everyone is doing time in one way or another. That's when I began rebuilding my life a step at a time, but more on that later. I spent the beginning of my sentence acting out. I was frustrated, hurt, and angry, and I got into every kind of trouble it was possible to get into while incarcerated in what were America's toughest prisons. I did around 10 years of solitary confinement, all told, and I did a lot of things I'm not proud of in order to rise to the top of prison society, which is all I felt I had left available to me at that time. But then I grew up. I got my head out of my behind and saw that there was more to life than prison gangs and being the toughest con on the yard. I began to go on a quest for self-improvement. I'm still on it, but I've come a very long way. I am no longer that 18-year-old child of the streets. I've really put in a lot of work toward becoming the kind of person I should have originally become. I give back to society in every way that I can. I'm enrolled in college courses with a 4.0 GPA. I take part in numerous self-help groups, both in prison and through the mail. That growth is why friends of mine have gotten together and helped me maintain this blog. I couldn't do it without them. So he goes on to ask that people reconsider that he might not be a danger to society anymore. And having spoken to him, I know that he also teaches classes on restorative justice and he works at the law library in the prison. So that's a it's quite a long story. But all to say, what I hope for this episode is that we can try to reframe we all of us, especially meaning myself, reframe what we think of when we think of the word prisoner, that these are not soulless people. The vast majority of people who are incarcerated in our country are people like Jason, even people who've done crimes, people like Jason, and many want to do better in the world. So it's a complicated set of issues, um, and I'm very thankful to Jason for allowing me to tell his story. But I have been really changed by this relationship, and I urge you, if you're interested, to find a prison pen pal because— you will learn so much. Uh, I'll just tell you one more thing. Jason loves to make arts and crafts for people. During the week of the election, I got this box in the mail, which you have to understand, like he he makes 19 cents an hour at his job. So for him to make a box and put $8 worth of postage, it's like a week's worth of labor. You know, that's a that's an insane gift for his scale of what he earns. So I got a box and inside the box was a carefully crafted wishing well. I'm not joking. He made me a wishing well. It, it's like 
It's got gravel that he glued together, like from the prison yard and little sticks. And it actually has a tiny handle. So the bucket and the little well goes up and down and there's a little gnome and a bird and a swing. Like he wished me well, literally. And I, I just started crying. I'm like, this is one of the most amazing gifts I've ever received in my entire life. But I'm continually amazed at his resilience of spirit and his refusal to give up hope to try to find a way to petition or get parole in some way. And I I'm trying to help him in, in any way that I can. So I, I I just want all of us to rethink what it means to be incarcerated in this episode. There there are so many different things that come up in this one person's story that touch on a lot of different topics I think would be helpful to talk about during this episode, including things like what does the word criminal or prisoner mean and what does it mean when somebody is labeled as a criminal or when they, act, when they become one, when they commit a crime, uh, what are they now? Are they no longer human? Like what? That's how people treat them or see them. Like how does society perceive them? Also things like you said he makes 19 cents an hour. Is that right? Yeah. And that's high. That, yeah. So that's high. That, that touches on something like we call the prison industrial complex, which includes corporations making money off of incarcerating massive amounts of people to work at such low wages, private corporations partnering with, with prisons. Uh, you talked about mandatory minimum sentencing. That's, that's where you take, uh, all, all the power out of a judge's hands to hand down a, a case specific, uh, judgment. And you say, if somebody does something, they are mandatory, mandatory to serve this amount of time. And that's something that's really interesting that came up in the the documentary that we can talk about. You talked about him serving solitary confinement and what we could talk about what that does to a human being and what the practices are like around solitary confinement. And you even touched on restorative versus punitive justice. So there's, there's all of these really heady topics that are super complex. You said complex at the beginning of the episode, but I think that they're they're almost difficult for people to understand if they're not really well versed and really educate themselves in like the history behind what these things are, how they're applied. And so uh seeing how all of these touch one person's life is fascinating. And I think it that, that it's a, a good place to start because we have to start with the fact that we're talking about people. We're not talking about soulless humans or humans that somehow are no longer human. We're talking about regular people who do bad things or who maybe who don't do bad things and who are incarcerated. And I think that you have to start there. Like, what does it mean to be a criminal and how is that used by the people in power to maintain status quo is an important element of this conversation. It's very important. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but when we're talking about this, and I, don't, I can't speak for both of you, but I know that I've been in a place where it was, well, that person committed the crime and they need to do the time, you know? And that's an, that's an easy thing to throw out there with rhetoric, law and order, uh, which the documentary dress, addresses a lot. And, and to be clear, we're not doing a full review of the documentary, but it's really inspired this conversation. So again, that's why we encourage you to go uh, check it out any way that you can. But it really comes down to our, our our definition of what justice is and how that has been shaped throughout our country's history. And then also from a Christian perspective, how our country's shaping of that has influenced the way that people look at justice 
from a theological point of view. And these are really important things. Like, Alan, when you mentioned, especially the thing that stood out to me was this mandatory minimum sentences for a specific crime. Like you said, if someone commits a crime, regardless of any of the circumstances, this is how much, at at the very least, how much time is going to be served there. And to me, on the surface... And when it's framed in a lot of ways, it can seem like, well, that seems like justice. You know, you this crime and you do this punishment or whatever. But I feel like for for us at least, and I would say from a biblical point of view, justice is all about context. And when you, you put a right. m- minimum sentence on something, then you are removing the ability for that judge to an, to really look at context and provide the best thing and the most just thing in that particular circumstances. And that's just, that's not even, that's barely scratching the surface of all the things that this is connected with. We're talking about an example that, that Mona gave us of someone who committed a crime, but how much the system is rigged towards people that don't commit crimes. Like there's so many layers to all this that we're talking about. And, uh, this is why let's, we need to talk about it. Let's stick with that one. Yeah, let, let, let's stick with mandatory minimum sentencing. Um, you, so you're talking about the concept of justice being like the difference between restorative and punitive. And that's something we talked about in our previous episode in episode 17. And how like maybe we we think about the world in Greek terms or platonic terms. Like there is this magic place in the world where the universe has a scale and when someone does something bad, it upsets the scale. So something bad has to happen to them to reset the scale. And that's one way to look at justice. But the more biblical way that you hinted at is that uh, justice is like restoring to wholeness. And so when you've hurt a community, when you've hurt a person, you do what it takes to restore that person or that community. And sometimes, you, obviously, you do things that can't. And and we're not saying that like you should never put someone in prison or something like that. But restorative justice looks at the wholeness of of everybody involved and what and what that looks like. And so th- those are two very different ways of approaching criminal justice. And I think that there are uh, people in charge who espouse the punitive form of justice that they run on that platform. Like this, this is something we have to do for the safety of everybody else and like for the writing of society, but it goes much deeper than that. Mandatory minimum sentencing laws were passed by uh, government organizations with vested interests in keeping prisons full. I know this sounds like conspiracy theory, but it's, it's not, there are private prisons who makes all kinds of money and corporations that benefit off of having people who make such little wages and mandatory minimum sentencing was suggested by, I believe this is in the 13th documentary suggested by a political group called Alec. (laughs) And I was introduced to Alec by John Oliver. That's a small little segment in the, the documentary. But if you watch John Oliver's episode on Alec, this is a group that, that, connects corporations with politicians and literally they have like secret voting where corp heads of corporate interests are put on the same playing field as politicians and they have closed door meetings. They're not allowed to know what happens there. They, they draft bills from Alec. And in some cases, literally you just insert your state's name and then you pass it off as your own bill. And um, there are corporations who are a part of Alec who benefit off of having as many people in prison as you can and Alec was the one in many cases who who set up mandatory minimum sentencing. So it's it's one thing to look at the individual and be like, oh, they need to serve the time. 
it's another thing to look at people who are benefiting off of an entire system of incarceration. And I think that it takes a lot more like mental work to think about the bigger things, but it's important to trace those and not just look at the the individual level. And so mandatory minimum sentencing is a great inroads to that, but it touches on just a barely a portion of what the whole industrial prison complex is. I want to come back to that in a second and backpedal for a second, and I'll, I'll end up back there at mandatory minimums. And, and another completely different aspect of why they're so detrimental and they've harmed so many people. So the documentary talks about the whole premise of the documentary is, OK, in the 1970s, we had 300,000 people incarcerated. Now we have 2.2 million. What the heck happened in 40 years to make this like you know, I don't know, quintuple or whatever it is. So the documentary traces ending slavery to Jim Crow segregation and then incarceration becoming this different versions of the same system of oppressing specifically people of color. Yes, the prison industrial industry hurts people from all races and ethnicities. And but because people of color make up the majority of lower classes in our country, not always, but for the most part, and lower classes uh, are completely disadvantaged in our criminal justice system. And I'll tell you why in a second. One of the major reasons um, it a lot of really intelligent people not only the people in this documentary, but many, many other scholars and and thinkers and politicians have argued that this system it functions as a system to oppress poor people and people of color, often both and. Um, and actually, one of Nixon, Nixon's head chief advisors, this came out last year, I believe it was it was stunning news. It was stunning news when when this came out, admitted that they basically coined the war on drugs and poverty to suppress anti-war p- hippies and black people. Like th- this, this was a specific political tactic. This again sounds like a conspiracy theory, but is well documented. Unbelievable. So anyway, back Wait, to you, but before you move on from that, I think that that's actually the for people who are coming to this fresh and they haven't thought a lot about this topic. That's the place you actually have to start. Because it's all just theories until you actually hear from the horse's mouth. Like Adam Conover, everybody has been using this quote because it's so prescient. And basically what happens is an advisor to Nixon, Nixon was the one who started the war on drugs. That's where it began. And if you're wondering why drugs are criminalized, like think for a second, why is a drug criminalized, right? Like why is it criminalized in the first place? Why is it criminal that someone smokes marijuana and sits at their home and doesn't do anything, right? Why Why is that? Well, it's because during the Nixon era, even when they knew it wasn't harmful to people to smoke marijuana, they still criminalized it because according to his aide, if you could associate weed with anti-war protesters who were really high on Nixon's hit list, mind you, and if you could associate heroin with the black community, which was like public enemy number one became drugs, right? But before that, that's what the social activists like Martin Luther King, the FBI, was adamantly opposed to people who were a part of the civil rights movement. And whether they were criminal or not, right? Like they were disrupting society. And so they were a huge public enemy. If you could associate the black community with heroin, Nixon's advisor said you could go in and start jailing all the leaders of these communities just off of suspicion. You could put them in jail because they are now 
criminal for being associated with drugs or having drugs in their community and being a part of that. And so that was the big push. And I think that like, that is a good picture of how the government has functioned. Um, but it goes both before that and afterward, right on the timeline, you can go trace it before that to a government that's dealing with slavery uh, now is illegal. Where, what is our economy going to do? How are we going to support this? And immediately you have um, chain gangs. You have the criminalization of uh, – as a society, we bought into the idea that there's all these um, riffraff now moving through all of our communities, these people of color who are dangerous. And like that became a national obsession. And so that fueled the ability for people to create cheap labor through the prison system. And so that's kind of what the the documentary talks about, but it, it, the entry point, I think for a lot of people has to be seeing Nixon himself (laughs) specifically using government and the war against crime as a way of disrupting like social justice for the people, for people of color. And many politicians have done this. Yeah. And that's an important thing too. Like, you know, we're talking about how did our incarceration rate get so high so quickly looking at the graph with your eyes, you see this sort of steady rate of incarceration and then it just shoots up to 10 times what it was before. And this is right in which the era that begins to happen. And it's, it's like, it's stark. Like you, you just look at the graph of the numbers of people incarceration being incarcerated it is staggering. And then you take into account, like, Alan, you mentioned drugs. Like, this is a huge, huge deal. Right now, it's close to 50% of the people that are even in jail are in because of drug charges. So this right. isn't – I mean, the correlation is – And nonviolent offenses comprise 80% of the population. Yeah. And, and violent offenses have been going down steadily. So – and the crime rate in general – has been going down, but our incarceration rate has been going up. Like there's a huge disconnect between what is happening here. And and again, this, um, this, this documentary provides a lot of context for that. But I think it's important for us to talk about as a post-evangelical podcast, because this is, this is a clear targeting of a people group who would be considered uh, the widow and the orphan from a New Testament perspective, the least of these or whatever, the marginalized, like this is... This is at the central focus of what we believe as 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 Christians, as people who believe in God and spirituality and justice and, and life for everybody. Jeff, you're going a really important direction, and I want to go back to that thought. But just to close up the the trail on uh, minimum mandatory sentences, one of the most surprising things about the documentary that I learned watching it was to think about the amount of cases that never go to trial because— People who don't have economic resources to hire a good lawyer are terrified of the mandatory minimum sentences. So 97% of cases never go to trial. That means, okay, our constitution is built on the idea that everyone has the right to a fair and speedy trial. We have a criminal system that was built for trying, you know, a couple hundred thousand cases a year, not 2.2 million cases a year. So the system itself can't hold the capacity that we've tried to stretch into it in so many ways. So it, it really, poor people are disadvantaged. 
completely disadvantaged. Because they will plead to a, 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 a who wouldn't, honestly, like who wouldn't say they committed a crime if it meant that they can have a reduced sentence or go home early in the face of mandatory sentencing and going to trial. Like they're basically like bribing people into not going to trial and admitting right. they're wrong. And it's, it's exactly it's what it is. Horrifying. Horrifying. 97%. Yeah. So if we believe that that lives matter in our country. Right. If we believe theologically that people are made in the image of God, Alan, you were talking about this off air, that this would be a great mm-hmm. time to talk about image of God. Like, and, and you believe like even a fraction in the constitution, like you looking at all of this mountain of evidence, it is pretty clear that this system as a whole is rabidly unjust. Right. Or if you just look at the world and you and you move away from just America, we have what I don't know the statistics, but five percent of the population in the world, but we incarcerate like one fourth or something like that. Some yeah. giant giant number. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world. We have more people in prison per our population than any other country, and we're talking every type of country, ones that don't have democracy, that don't have like. Uh, freedom that is guaranteed to people in the founding documents of what they have like this. It, it's just, inc- it's incredible on it's a incredible. human level. Mm-hmm. So on a theological level, a human level, a post evangelical level, new Testament, Old Testament, on, on every level, everybody kind of agrees. And now there's this kind of move, even in conservative politics toward, well, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. We need to have prison reform. We need to have some sort of reform. And the problem is, um, that it's very shifty. I'm sure we we have a lot of other things to cover before we get there, but the same forces that created this problem and benefited from it are going to spin whatever comes next in their favor, you know? Like that's it doesn't just go away. And so there's there's speculation in the documentary about how that will look next. And I think that's an interesting conversation. I I want to touch back on the theological Jeff because I'm glad you brought that up and I read there's a really wonderful book by a theologian called Mark Taylor, uh, who teaches at Princeton. Uh, the book is called The Executed God. And he makes a case for the fact that he he and many other uh, contemporary theologians, big names like um, Bart and Moltmann and Tillich, all talked about Jesus as being a criminal God and how strange it is that in today's world, in the U.S., Oftentimes, conservative Christians, gospel-believing Christians, are the ones to be the harshest on crime and criminals and to tout the criminal, the prison system and the mass incarceration. When the Bible says specifically, don't neglect people in prison, Jesus was crucified as a criminal. Like, our deity is a criminal. You know, and and to really and think the about that. followers were criminals, too. Well, not only they were that, all criminals. the whole arc of the people of God, if you go from from the the Hebrew people in the desert to the only time that they were the ones in power was the one was the one time where they were most against God, like literally because of the prophets where when they had their kingdom, when they were in charge, the main thing against them was you weren't welcoming the strangers. You did not remember your affliction. You did not remember when you were in slave. You do not re- you did not remember all the things that brought you to this place and therefore you know, you're going to destroy yourselves because of it. Like that is, that is the arc of, of our tradition from its earliest vantage point is that we've always been on the outside and our, you know, our goal is to be the type of people that welcome outsiders because we know more than anyone what it is to be there. Like that's our arc. Yeah. 
And, and, and in Taylor's book, this is really interesting. He told a story about visiting a prison and, and seeing one of the inmates um, slam his meal tray down. I believe it was someone in solitary, slammed it down. And he said, you know, I've been conditioned. He, he, I'm paraphrasing very loosely, but he said, I've been conditioned to see that as an act of aggression and like, oh, look at this, you know, this monster who's just being angry or being evil or being a criminal. But he's like... the. He's like, when I think about it and I think about how this system turns people into like living ghosts, like specters, like in between worlds, like kind of dead, but kind of alive and forces people into these completely inhumane states of being caged, actually caged like animals. He's like, I, I, he's like, I started seeing this guy as someone who was speaking in that act of throwing that tray down. He was resisting. He was using his voice. He wasn't being bad. It's so different when we start thinking about people resisting inhumane conditions because people innately know that human life is more valuable than that. Right. And and to make the theological point that I've made a hundred times and I will continue, I believe that you do not forfeit the image of God just because you've committed a crime. Like there, the, the stories of redemption, of grace, of transformation, and even loving enemies, as the New Testament commands us, speaks to me a powerful ethic that just because somebody sins or does evil or commits a crime doesn't mean, in, in my case, you put them to death or that you put them in solitary confinement, which is death by confinement, right? With no human contact forever, or that you cease to think of them as a human being. Like they're not a concept or a ghost. They're they're still people made in the image of God, regardless of what they've done. Because regardless of what I do, I've been made in the image of God as well, you know. And that that's we've lost touch with that. And so so those are two conversations. If we're going to speak to, like Jeff said, the Christians for some reason who are touting this um, and touting the industrial complex and making it more of a problem and getting away from from kind of our roots. There's two conversations to be had. Let's talk about the criminals who have made like horrible, who've done horrible crimes, right? And let's, how do we treat them? And we could also think about uh, the prison industrial complex as this, this is a weapon being used against entire groups of people for the benefit of some. And that, that other side of things really touches on the reason we should care about this as Christians is that the very first act of Jesus at, in his public adult life ministry that we have in the New Testament, as as far as the Gospels portray it, he stands up and reads from the scroll of, scroll of Isaiah, and one of the things that he speaks of is setting the captives free. Like that's that's what Jesus's ministry was about was setting captives free. And I think that like everything, we live in a society where such a huge percentage of people are captives, right? One in seventeen uh, white people. White males, I think this is what the documentary said, will be incarcerated. And one in three, the likelihood of, of people of color, one of three uh, males will be incarcerated. And that's like you can buy into some bullshit explanation that just because a person is a certain way that they're going to be more likely a criminal or something. Or you can look at the wider context of how our society has jailed fathers and political leaders during the civil rights era who committed no crime other than fighting for equality we've we've deported them jailed them killed them and we've disrupted entire communities entire generations 
and then proceeded to go into this is what again what the documentary talks about proceeded to go into the the war on drugs and law and order and all these things and we've we've created our society or the way it's been set up has created the problem of mass incarceration it's not something that we're just reacting to because we're trying to do right this is kind of a historical contextual thing that has happened if you don't understand all the history and context it doesn't seem that way, but that's what it is. And as Christians, we have to be a part of Jesus's ministry that he himself described he would do, and that is setting captives free from this big thing as well as the smaller things. I feel like I'm preaching now, and that's not... No, it's it's something to be passionate about, and I think it's really interesting. It's really prescient in the results of the election, they they cover this in the documentary as well, that Donald Trump ran on a law and order ticket and what that word means and how that word has been, how, how that how law and order has been weaponized against large segments of our population and how that term has come to strike fear in the hearts of many communities, because it means that their incarceration rates are probably going up. I mean, this is the holiday season, right? Like chances are that multiple people listening to this podcast right now have family members and friends who are behind bars and caged, and many of them will be innocent. And to think about the the effects of this on our society, I mean, I just think like some people will argue that that uh, incarceration is a deterrent, but studies have shown over and over again that when the state uses force against its own people, it models the use of force as a way to solve problems. And it actually teaches people to use force and violence. Like it self-perpetuates violence rather than solves it. If you want, I mean, we've talked about a third way so many times on the show to jump out of that cycle of violence and out of that cycle of punishment. We have to think about what restoration might actually look like. And so, yes, of course, there are always instances where someone is so dangerous to themselves in society that they cannot, right. like they're, they're, they there are always extreme cases. Yes. Yes, of course. And we talked about this in our former episode as well, but I want to offer some really specific ways that we can really, if we're, if you're interested in getting involved in these issues, which I hope you are based on what we've presented to you today, there's there are four ways that really people can start thinking about this in in practical ways. Number one, um, confronting white fear as white people is so important. And I think this has a hugely theological component. Like love casts out all fear, the Bible says. Love casts out fear. And if if we live in a state, we allow ourselves to live in a state of fear of our neighbors before anything's happened, just based on what our neighbors look like or do or sound like or whatever, like we are not living Christian lives of love. We have to confront white fear that might drive policy that is oppressive to people that we are afraid of just because we've been taught to be afraid. If we don't learn to confront that white fear and take responsibility for it and call it out for the evil that it is, we contribute to cycles of oppression. The second thing that you can do is to do whatever you can to humanize folks who are in prison. Get involved in some kind of thing. Get to know prisoners. I mean, write letters, like go visit people. There's a lot that you can do. You can volunteer with families of incarcerated people. There's a lot that you can do to to humanize and realize that these, these people and their families are people foremost first and foremost and the road to recovery and rehabilitation is to be loved and to be surrounded by family and friends not to be cast out of society 
The third thing that's and, really- and whether you think number two is optional or not, like Jeff said, that's a commandment. Humanizing the other, loving your enemies, even not forgetting the least of these and the left out, which incarcerated human beings are absolutely the the furthest in our society. That's their definition. We're, we're commanded in the New Testament to do, what was that, number three on your list of things? Number, number two. two. That's number, number two. two. Humanize. Yeah. yeah. That that's a that's a Christian commandment for sure. Yeah, and it, I think it means suspending the in, the inclination to stamp someone with that criminal stamp. I mean, as we saw in the documentary, that has that's a weapon used against people, and that and we have to ask who does it benefit when someone gets stamped a criminal, and how is it actually representing the situation, the context? Yeah, and um, when you, I'm sorry, before I, just, I had to ahead, jump yeah. in on this one because I think this one is so important. That that idea of humanizing people, like we think in terms of punishment for what someone has done as a way to take away their power because they've abused it. But we need to think in terms of re-empowering them in a way that's going to be useful. Because the more and more you take away from someone's voice, like you were alluding to earlier, Mona, you're you're going to force them to create new places to express themselves. And usually it's through aggression, especially if that's what's being put on to them and it's it's so important like there's I, I recently went to an event where um father greg boyle spoke uh he's the founder of homeboy ministries down in la where his whole ministry was how do we empower people that have been incarcerated how do we empower people now that they've been out into creating new ways for themselves for for a job for a life of a life a life of life to thrive. And part of that, the first thing has to be humanizing people, has to be referring to everyone in terms of who they are, the people that they are by name, because they're in a system that's referring to them as numbers. They're in a oh, country that's whose rhetoric is referring to them as super predators and animals and beasts, like all, all those things are there. And th- that humanization part is the most important thing. And that's why connection with whether it's a pen pal or or ministries like uh what is it there's a there's a bus ministry out there that takes families to their family members that are incarcerated and you know gives them an opportunity to meet and to visit and i forget the statistic that they have but like those things prevent reincarceration because they're connecting with their family and they realize that there's more out there and if if you separate them from everything out there then what incentive is there to be any kind of productive person at all. And then if you're separating the good people who are there unjustly, then you're creating the problem that you say you're trying to avoid. Sorry, I'll step down from my soapbox now. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and that's a really good segue into my third my third point is a concept. This is a really cool word that what a friend of mine taught me. She had a, has had a long career working with a criminal uh, restorative justice and inmate rights in Chile. My friend Nevis taught me this word generativity that restorative justice people are now trying to use that uh, a lot of times prison ministries or prison services or prison things like a lot of times it's focused on like giving to or giving at inmates And instead, providing opportunities for inmates to give back. And Nevis told this amazing story about um, at a woman's prison, um, the women... they started a program where they wanted to reforest. They wanted to grow trees. And so um, she said that it was 
absolutely amazing to see what happened in the lives of these women when they had something to care for and they could give back and to see them put so much effort into their gardening and to be so proud that they could contribute. That's what generativity is. It's the ability to give back and provide value. So so when you're looking for organizations to support and volunteer with, look for generativity, look for empowerment, look for instances where where someone from the outside is not just humanizing inmates, but giving the opportunity for inmates to humanize themselves through contributing, through through making art, like my wishing well that Jason gave me. He was practicing generativity. Um, so that's a really, really key thing to look for. Because the, the last thing you want to do for someone who's been marginalized and beat down their whole life is to give at them in a way that still feels belittling, you know? Yeah, it's still dehumanizing. Yeah. And a, corolla- a corollary to that point, which may be another point you have, is to fight exploitation of incarcerated labor. So you're, you're, you're talking about giving people who are incarcerated the ability to give back. I think we should be fighting the corporations who are benefiting off of incarcerated labor at huge rates. And I, like, Absolutely. That I, was number four is radical reform. Oh, really? I mean, we, we have to... <laughs> Yeah, not just not just prison labor, but like there's a lot of organizations now that are popping up saying, hey, maybe we should just abolish prisons. There are other ways to do this that are more humane and more effective at getting people restored back to society and actually better for the economy and better for communities and better for families. This is a really outdated system. The word penitentiary comes from the word penitent. It's a religious concept um, in the same way that cells are modeled after monasteries. So monks in the middle evil times used to go into their cells alone to be penitent, to repent for their sins, and to become more holy. And so the idea was when prison reformers were working in U.S. and Europe um, in the 1800s, well, said, hey, well, we want what we want from prisoners is for them to reform and to be redeemed. So why why not treat them like monks? We'll have little cells for them and they can go through a really ritualized day and they can be sorry for their sins. They can be penitent and then maybe we'll incorporate them back into society. So penitentiaries come out of Protestant thinking. And that's why it's really important for theologically for Protestants and for Christians to engage these issues head on and to admit that, hey, this may not be the best model for human flourishing. And even if you think prisons, you know, you don't want to do away with them completely. Reform is absolutely important. Not to just keep circling back to the the idea that corporations are making money, but inmates make everything in the economy from jeans to uh, technology that gets put into weapons and into all kinds of things. So that there's huge subsidies that are that are happening um, to big corporations based off of prison labor. There are private companies that run prisons that get really big contracts for a really long period of time. Because when you build a prison, you need to be able to use it to have money back on your investment. So you have this really long contract with a state and you'll build your private prison. Then there's no incentive, thinking in like capitalistic terms, no incentive to do your job well. So there's this is documented case after case where private prisons horrible crap happens, like really bad stuff. People are not taken care of because there's no incentive for this private company to actually follow through on the thing that they said they would do. And so I, I think in California, they we just recently closed a private prison. And that's a that should be a point of rejoicing for Christians because this 
the the system set up to hurt people for profit. And I think that that needs to be um, there needs to be lots of suspicion for corporations and people who are making money off of the prison system. Yeah, it, actually, in this past year, some legislation was passed to start banning private prisons. But now that Trump won, stock in private prisons is up like 60 percent because he's a law really? and order candidate. Yeah. So there's anticipation Excuse that me, the problem's going to get. That's, it's awful. That's, that's awful. It's, it's gut yeah. churning. I know. Mind you, we have a president elect who took out a full page ad for uh, who? What, what was the group of, of teens that were the Central um, Park Five? The Central Park Five. He took out an entire ad saying we need to kill these teenagers because they committed a crime. And later, DNA evidence exonerated them. They were innocent of the crime. But our sitting president right now took out an ad. Well, not only that, did he death. take out an ad, but that was before they were found innocent from but then during this election still maintained that yes. they should be in jail despite the fact that dna evidence exonerated them years ago it's i did hear that didn't i, I yeah, i'm pretty sure yeah. i did hear trump say that, that. it came yeah. up in this last election cycle for sure and he was still holding on to that standpoint because it because politically people win on that ticket people win right. preying on white fear that People is a win when they ticket. get the Southern vote. That's There's no other way to say it. If, if you look at the, the law and order of Reagan and you look at Nixon and all of their wins, they won because they courted the Southern vote. And that's the point that 13th makes pretty strongly. It's almost a throwaway point at, at one point in the documentary. But the idea is that if you can speak to a disenfranchised white South after the slavery, even to this day, you benefit from it politically. And oh, so that's not why only that. But if you can block 30 percent of African-American males in the South from right. voting because they're felons, That's right. you can secure that white voting block forever. Even if they've done their time, they will never have the right to vote again. They're not real citizens. It's take, right. Their citizen, citizenry has That was revoked. a throwaway point. You're right. I mean, it, right. I mean, except for their their work on like the documentaries work on Clinton both Hillary and Bill, and how Bill uh, became sort of a law and order candidate in his fight on drugs, and in his he made the incarceration problem way worse because he did that through that was his, his ability to become president, to be elected, was based off of becoming like the Republicans who were law and order candidates. And that's why the problem got so much worse. And so like the the, the age-old history of class, it does have a huge backdrop to this conversation that people ignore because they say it doesn't exist or they just haven't taken the time to really read through and and look through history and set things in historical context. You cannot have a conversation with people that disagree specifically about this topic, especially the reason we have such vehement disagreements over race, all lives matter versus black lives matter is because um People who refuse to look at our present situation in historical context, who refuse to trace through the last years and generations back to how our structures, how our families, how we are in the place we are because of our past. If you refuse to look at those things, you can't have a conversation about this topic because there's no way to extricate the race conversation or the industri prison industrial complex conversation out of historical context. So you have to start there. And and that's, yeah. And, and I think that's kind of the, the whole 
place where we land on this. I mean, we can literally probably have, <laughs> I feel like a whole year's worth of episodes with this particular topic because it is so layered. So um, perhaps maybe we should look at towards doing some kind of like a, like a three or four part series on justice and, and expand all these things. But for now, I think it's a good start. Um, so any, any final thoughts, Alan, you're not allowed to have one cause you just had like, that was mine. <laughs> that was it. Right. Uh, Mona, anything else you want to say before we, uh, close out this conversation? Um, I would encourage people to remember that law, the law is not fixed. And I think it's really hard for Protestants and Christians, uh, in general to, Remember, because if you read the Bible, it's like the law of God is like this very fixed understanding. But in the U.S. legal system, this is going to sound really basic, but just hang with me for a second. Our laws are made up by people. And they're only as good as the effects of them. So to say that someone is breaking a law does not reflect on their goodness or morality as a human being. It just means that they're breaking a law, like that it's different. So I, I hope that in this conversation you have been able to think a little bit more uh, nuanced and strategically about what criminality and criminalization is and does. And that's the whole thing I hope to get across to everyone today. I, I'm not trying to incite bad things, but I, I want to say, think critically about the laws that we have. Think critically about how they get created and who they benefit and who they don't benefit and who they might harm. And don't take law as a fixed entity or legal process as a fixed system. It's just made up and we've done the best we can, but we are nowhere near doing the best we can do, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are great thoughts, and and we want to hear your thoughts, as usual. Um, add your voice to this particular conversation and comment on the show notes at arenacast.com slash 94, and there you'll find a complete list of all the things that we talked about, um, links to the documentary and some of the statistics we mentioned, uh, and then also all the ways to get a hold of us, our social media, email, everything like that. That's arenacast.com slash 94. Uh, so to stay in the spirit of how ridiculous our justice system is, we are going to highlight some ridiculous laws that are connected to it on the other side of the music. So for this segment, we have found laws that are technically still on the books that are ridiculous, just like dumb, <laughs> just like the justice system in general in our country, apparently. Um so we just thought this would be fun. So Alan, Not all of it, just most of it. Just most, most of, it. of the justice system. Just yeah. most of it. Uh, oh, we didn't even talk about militarization of police forces. We'll save that for later. Yeah, that's not. Let's do the segment instead. <laughs> yeah, let's not. <laughs> let's just that scratch the segment. And, <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, no, all right. So said. I'll go first. Okay, go first. Okay. So I, I want a different tack. I chose things that make me upset. In Burlingame, it is illegal to put coins in a parking meter that's your car's not parked at. And I guess that's like common around the United States. Pretty common, yeah. Cities. That's why right. I always, whenever I go into a parking spot with a parking meter, even if I'm only there five minutes, I always pay for the full <laughs> the full amount. Just nice. so there's a little leftover when forward. someone goes. And I always <laughs> mostly fill it up before I, I leave. <laughs> I don't know where the video is, man, but there was... Uh, some sort of 
like jackass or something. I forgot what it was, but a prank was being pulled where someone dressed up as the meter fairy and was like skipping around, putting coins in people's meters that were expired so that they wouldn't get a ticket. And they actually got like arrested or fined Mm -hmm. for doing that. Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. It makes me upset. I get why they do it. It's because you don't want cars to sit there forever or something like that. But isn't that sad that you can't just help your neighbor out by putting a little dime? Brother, can you spare a dime? That's pretty sad. Why would they care? Why would they take the time to pass that legislation and like all the money to pass that legislation? Like, just because so you silly really don't want to see people cents. like loving each other and putting. Yeah, That's I mean, so especially with how common it is, it's not like Burlingame is the like the exception. Like, yeah, it's just one of many. Everywhere right? I've ever lived that's had parking meters, that's been the law. It's pretty. Anyway, <laughs> that's that's dumb. Mona, I hate it. How about you? All right, Th- this one's a, a little bit strange. Montana, it is illegal to guide a sheep onto a railroad track with the intent to injure the train, not the sheep. <laughs> you can get a fine of up to fifty thousand dollars and jail time up to five years. <gasps> Wow! What if you? So your defense could be like, I really didn't like that sheep, and I, <laughs> I was really, really trying to, to harm the sheep, not the train. <laughs> okay, you're fine. Go free. That's the weirdest. That's so weird. Fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand dollars. And like, and like, of all the things you could use to harm a train, like why, why a sheep? Why not a, a like a car or you know some something larger than a sheep? Anything larger than a sheep? Or like a well placed joke about a train conductor, so you can see that he's going by. <laughs> There's got to be, maybe I'm just an idealist, but there's got to be like historical context for why that's a law, right? Hopefully, maybe. somebody did it. It it's doesn't right. explain in the article, I don't know, but no. it's hilarious. That maybe it's a follow-up segment. The reason behind these lame laws. I don't, and, yeah. And would a sheep harm a trade? I'm just like trying to think through it like. I know. I like, feel like the trade would just own that sheep. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe they would have to spend time cleaning it up or something, but I don't see the logic in such a like brilliant plan like oh man this is gonna be so good it's gonna destroy so, this so would train. you call it would you call it a bad plan yeah oh i probably gosh. would let's not let's not do <laughs> I that like all right so it's my turn is I that like that was that that's what that means yeah all right um all right so i i'm gonna go the same route but a little bit differently like these are actual laws that are ridiculous that people that they're still enforcing this one is in uh, Woburn, Massachusetts, it is illegal to be intoxicated standing up. So what? according to the, <laughs> the city's license what? commission, no restaurant is allowed to serve an alcoholic beverage to a person who isn't seated. Patrons are not <laughs> permitted to carry booze or consume unless they are firmly rooted in a chair. Exceptions oh can be made, gosh. however, for businesses that are granted a special approved standing license. Like, that's literally the <laughs> approved so standing like if, license. If you're at church and you're like, hey, we really want to serve communion to people standing up. <laughs> they're like, If it's okay, alcoholic, good. technically, here's, that would here, be, here's yes. Here's your permit. <laughs> and, and people get fined on this on a regular basis. Like, this is enforced. And not only that, but in their laws, Amazing. just for the holidays, no sale of al- alcoholic beverages on Christmas Day. So, Of course not. So it's Jesus's birthday. I guess in any place in the world, like even most people would agree that it's inappropriate to say Merry Christmas in this town because it can't be merry without a little bit of alcohol (laughs) sales. So you got nothing for your knowledge. Holy juice. You know, in so many states, there's still standing laws. It depends on the city a lot of times that you can't sell liquor like on Sunday mornings. 
It's so funny to me. Like, okay. Is this yeah, really going to prevent people from drinking? I don't know. You know? It's like, it's yeah, ridiculous. It's so weird. Um, this just makes me angry because of who I am. But all over the place, all kinds of cities, including Sugar Creek, Missouri, but also Sac- Sacramento, near where I live, uh, until 2009, it's illegal to grow vegetables in your front yard. Why? It's illegal to grow veggies to feed your, your family front in your own freaking yard. Okay, yes. you know, I give libertarians a lot of crap, but like I can understand how in some cases this is so outrageous that the government would be able to right. tell people what they can grow in their own front yard. I okay, <laughs> I I get it. I can get it, you know. That's, yeah. uh, that's yeah. completely inferior. I think that, I think there's a lot of libertarian stuff that that's pretty good. Like there's there's other places along those lines where it's illegal to harvest your own rainwater. Right. Yeah, and right. that's because they want the groundwater to to be a certain level, but then they'll give, you know, contracts to companies to come just jack all the water out of the ground for profit. So that just, sorry, I'm going to go on another rant right now. This is a fun segment, Alan. This is a fun segment. Ooh, Take sorry, a deep breath. I know it's supposed to be fun. Okay. Deep breath. Deep breath. Uh, You're not in Woburn. Stand up. Take a drink. You're good. <laughs> is it my Take turn? Take a drink. Grow yeah. some veggies. Your turn. Yep. Yeah. Your turn. Okay. You guys, if you're in Iowa, you will get a misdemeanor if you... Try to pass off margarine as real butter. Good. <laughs> you will officially get a misdemeanor. Like you will be legally convicted of a misdemeanor if you try to sell margarine and say it's butter. What the heck? <laughs> because it's that... not real butter. That sounds like a solid law to me. I'm that should like be it? enforced. I love that. <laughs> Iowa's like, we really care about our butter. They really a care lot. about their butter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A similar a similar law in Wisconsin, um you're not allowed to ch- produce cheese unless it is quote highly pleasing. <laughs> I like that law too. You cannot <laughs> manufacture cheese in our state unless it is top quality. It can't be state certified <laughs> unless it's highly pleasing. Why oh, do yeah. we even have laws if we can't raise the bar? <laughs> Of our right. culinary pursuits. Dairy I products. am down. I'm moving Seriously. to this Dang place it. right now. I'm going to Wisconsin. <laughs> you going to Wisconsin? It's they do fine have to grow cheese. crappy food in your front yard. But if you're going to start selling it in our state, it better be really freaking good. Exactly. Right? Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. Um, all right. So my final thing is in West Lafayette, Ohio, it is against the law to have pet ducks in your residence. And a man named Darren was fined. He it was a fifty dollar fine, but still he was held accountable to this to this law, despite the fact that he is a veteran and he had those ducks as 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 one of those pet programs for someone who has PTSD. You know, they really say like pets. They were service ducks. So yes, they were service. Oh my god, <laughs> service that's ducks. so messed up. And he was still fined and held accountable to this law. Of having pet ducks, despite the fact that they were helping him ease his... That's really it's sad. It's really bad. See, because a lot of these laws, like, <laughs> what the hell? honestly aren't enforced. That are on these crazy laws, like a chicken can't cross the road or whatever in, in daylight hours. Until um, it serves someone purpose yeah. to push well, it. Well, no, but they're usually not enforced. Like, most of the time, it's, it's more expensive to get them off the books and, like, take the time to pass the legislation to, like, right. unwrite laws that are passed in, like, 1845. So, a lot of times, like, people just look the other way. So, it's, like, exceptionally sad when ridiculous laws get, right. I don't know. But, mm-hmm. but then sometimes some they're enforced. Issue? Sometimes they're they're enforced, though. Like, like out this of one. nowhere. Yeah. Like like, this one. So, 
there's an old wiretapping law about filming or recording public servants while they are doing their job in this one county or this one state. And this guy had like old cars, abandoned cars, just like cluttering up his property. And they kept telling him, you need to remove these cars from your property. It's a public nuisance. And they kept coming to his house and harassing him, like really harassing him, the the police were. So he recorded them secretly harassing him in his pocket, in his coat, and got like 35 years in prison for recording a conversation where he believed he was being harassed by public officers wow. because of old wiretapping laws. Wow. And wow. he's been in, and he's still in prison right now. It's really unfortunate. So it, it's like not to take this fun segment and turn it into something terrible, but like these old laws, they, they can be put to use when certain people want them to, you know, when someone gets pissed that your yard doesn't look right, it, it could be used against you. It's really unfortunate, and especially with ducks. What the heck, dude? Maybe that some kind of like health something. I don't know. I mean, or like, I'm sure loud, it was. I'm sure it wasn't worth the hassle fighting it for fifty bucks because that's a minor misdemeanor. But still, that's beyond lame for that particular one. All right. Well, yeah. <laughs> on that note, <laughs> we as we're headed into Christmas, let's provide people with something more uplifting. Uh, Mona, you have a, a quick announcement regarding what we talked about in our conversation uh, that we want to draw people's attention to as we we close out this episode. Yeah, if you were moved by Jason's story, uh, Jason is trying to raise some money to hire a lawyer to look at his case under the right of habeas corpus, and uh, it takes a few thousand dollars to do so. So we would really like to give Jason a gift this Christmas of legal fees, and I will be administrating this uh, fund for him. Um, And if you would like to contribute to that fund, it would mean so much. So we'll, we will have the links to that in the show notes, and you can go right into that and have all the information, uh, all the details of his case and how you can help in regards to that. Uh, it being the holiday season and Christmas coming up this week, this is our last episode before Christmas. We would be in error to have a conversation like we did today and not provide some way to be a part of a solution, even if it feels small in comparison to the, the daunting task of reform in front of us. But it's important, you know? It's important. We can't just sit behind this microphone and yap all the time. <laughs> you know, we have to we have to do something. So we hope that all of you who are celebrating Christmas this week have a great Christmas. And if you want to support the show in general, you can find all the ways to do that at irenacast.com slash support. And to close out the year, next week we will finish out the year with another Divine Cinema episode. And we'll be looking at Saving Christmas, Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas. And you can find that on Hulu if you have that service. Um, hope everyone has a wonderful Christmas for this week. I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thanks for joining the conversation.